And we're back in live. I'm Jimmy Krupka. This is Ski Racing This Week, Ski Racing Media's official podcast. Let's do it. Hello? I wish I was a little bit taller. I wish I was a baller. I wish I had a girl who looked good. I would call her. Wish I had a rabbit in a hat with a bat. Okay, I'm just as surprised as you are that it's already next week. Uh, this is a weekly podcast, by the way, so weeks are going by at this point. This is my only way to keep track of time, really. I know it's Thursday when the podcast has to come out. I think I'd be lost in the nether without it. Um, first, I want to express my condolences, send out prayers and positive vibes to those suffering from this very real virus, either because they or a loved one is sick or because their children or parents are driving them mad in quarantine. I know the feeling. Hopefully, my family is not listening to this. <laughs> now, I must admit, I'm dealing with quite a bit of privilege in these times. I'm like the Purell company. I'm, while everyone else is going down, I'm doing okay, because everyone needs a dose of ski racing right now, especially because it would still be happening right now. And to top it off, Everybody has nothing to do, so they figure they might as well start listening to podcasts. Good business to be in these days. Um, hopefully I make your day a little less boring. I want to remind you, also, that there are four easy steps for doing your part to keep yourself and others healthy. Stay socially distanced, wash your hands, get some exercise, listen to this podcast. Wait, see if you can do all four at the same time. There's a challenge. Actually, send me a video of you doing all four to Jimmy Who on Instagram or SkiRacingThisWeek at gmail.com, and I'll give you a prize. Maybe I'll send you a roll of toilet paper or something. At least I'll shout you out. Anyway, I've got a great show for you this week. First, we talk to Italian slalom star Alex Vanatzer, who is watching from the front lines in Italy. Now, an aside here, I want to thank Carrie Stone, who emailed me with the subject line, Humanistic Stories and Reality. It was fun to escape reality with the show last week, and I think people appreciate it, but as a journalist, I do need to address harsh realities sometimes. Her email prompted me to call Alex, and I'm glad that I did. She also asked that I cover how the ski racing community at large will be impacted by this pandemic, and here I'm going to be patient, because I don't think there's any use of trying to guess the impact until it's over, and once it is, I'll have a lot of investigative journalism to do, a lot of stories. But until then, ski racing community, stand strong. After Alex Vanatzer, we get the Encyclopedia of Ski Racing himself, Tom Kelly, on the phone to give the entire story of American Slalom. I mean, this is this recording is going in the archives. Now, without further ado, I'd like to welcome on the show Alex Vanatzer. Wait, a little more ado. Some background. Alex is a world junior champion in 2019 at Pozza de Fossa of slalom and a rising slalom star this year on the World Cup, getting his first podium this season in Zagreb. And he also produces fantastic ninja videos. I don't know how else to explain them. You have to go to Instagram. It's Alex vntzr that's his handle on instagram um and now without further ado alex finatzer i hope everything is is uh not too bad over in italy um but but tell me how, how is it yeah well um yeah it's not quite easy we got yeah. this complete lockdown so just 
grocery stores and pharmacies and hospitals are open and you can't get out of your house without an auto signed permission mm-hmm. and without a valid motive and if they stop you you get a fine of 206 euros i think wow uh, and so yeah you either get out of the house to go shopping or to to the to the pharmacy but either way you should not leave the house but i mean i live in a, a village so it's it's probably easier than in the big cities where there uh, there are really much controls, but still everybody stays in the house and all the streets are empty. Wow, that that must be weird. Over over here, I'm in Colorado, and they yeah. do they do the same thing where it's only the pharmacies and supermarkets open, um, but there's still a lot of people about, and they definitely don't they don't stop you. So um, maybe they should well, be doing that. Yeah, it was like this one or two weeks ago when they started the lockdown but um, they had to put some more measures to stop people uh-huh. getting out of the house because too many people were walking the streets and mm-hmm. so yeah that's about it yeah um, so actually um, backing up a second um, I raced against you at uh, the slalom in Val de Fossa World, Junior, World yeah. Juniors yeah yeah, yeah, in Valdifasa. Yeah, um, and obviously <laughs> you beat me, but um, <laughs> that was a fun race. And I, I want to return, but 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 I do want to talk about the season um, because you had your best season yet. You had your first podium at Zagreb, and yeah. uh, you had an awesome second run. Can you tell me a little bit about about that second run and and how it felt and what you were thinking? Yeah, well, um, first run was pretty good I, I think it was eight after first run and if I could be in that place again that would be my best result of the career so far and so mm-hmm. I thought I, I didn't want it to go full attack mode because uh, I didn't want to ski out or risk to make a mistake but I just thought to ski well and when I started I felt, felt pretty confident and started pushing more and more down uh, as far as I got it, then the, the last part, I, I really went full gas. And uh-huh. yeah, I think that was the part where I earned the podium. So yeah, it was a pretty emotional day for me. <laughs> yeah, it must have been. Did you yeah. did you party that night? Uh, no, I could not. I mean, I had my flights to Verona for Madonna di Campiglio the same night. And, oh, that's right. And my party was alone at the hotel bar at 10 p.m. with a beer and a toast, so <laughs> not much celebrating. Yeah, but it still must have felt That's good. Yeah. Um, and then wh- I heard that before uh, Kranzkagora was canceled, they you actually were stuck in, in, in Italy and you wouldn't have been let out. I was in Norway, actually, for oh. the World Juniors. Okay. And they canceled the race at 10 p.m. the day before the GS. And so the Federation booked my flight for the next day and I had to go back to Italy. Like every other one, or every other race, I had to go home as fast as possible. So to prevent it, we would be stuck in Norway for 14 days. Uh-huh. Um, and then was it, I mean, I'm experiencing the same thing but was it weird when the when the season was suddenly just over over uh 
yeah, it's just worse day by day, and it went so fast. I mean, it was like on the 5th of March, there was like everything okay. Then they started canceling races in Italy, and then they started, and then it was just fine. Just in Italy, they canceled the race, but then we couldn't do any races in Austria or Germany and other countries. But we could, since I was already in Norway, I could have raced in Norway. Then there came the notification that the Italians are not allowed to race in Kranskagora. And then they canceled everything in within two days. And yeah, it just went fast. Yeah, it was crazy. Um, now I have a, a, a fun question because, yeah. um, I love your, your Instagram ninja videos. So when <laughs> you, and with all the time you have, have you been working on a new ninja video? Uh, um, no, because, um, I'm like, because my, my parents got Corona and oh, so, really? uh, yeah, but they're all well uh-huh. and I'm like, we own a hotel and so I'm in a hotel room and I can't have any contact with that. So I'm alone all the time and I can't find anybody who, who can film myself. So, oh. <laughs> or else I would be, have a few, I had a few ideas to put down a new video, but I probably have to wait. Man, so you're, I still you're... have one that I can post uh-huh. in my camera roll. So I'll see when I'll post it or make a new one. Yeah, well, I think the, the people need that in this time when everybody is bored. Yeah, the only problem, the, the Federation told us if we do any Instagram content, it should be when we are at home or inside the house. So it's it's like oh. really difficult to make a nice video in the, in the house. So mm-hmm. yeah, I guess I have to wait and maybe I find something, put on my costume, do something. Or, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Well, um, I hope I hope we see more of those, and I I really hope that it, it gets better in uh, in Italy. Um, is mm-hmm. there, I feel helpless. I think everybody feels helpless. Is there anything yeah. we can we can do, or is it just to stay home? Yeah, I mean there are pretty much donations going around on social networks, so uh-huh. that's the only thing you can do to help. Stay at home. I mean. I'm lucky I have I can train I can do dryland training but I just watch series or on Netflix all day long and and yeah. sleep a lot. <laughs> wow, I think that's what a lot of people are doing. Um well Yeah, yeah, bro. Um Alex, I really appreciate the call. Um I wish yeah, health you. I wish health to everybody um around you and in Italy and the best um, the best of luck, and hopefully uh, the the season, the next season, will be um, back up and running like normal. Yeah, yeah, I hope so too. I hope it's it's stopping soon, and wish you all health and stay safe in the, U- the U.S. Yeah, and if uh, if I see you over in Europe next year, we'll have to do a, a face-to-face hopefully. interview. Okay, yeah, nice. That sounds great. All right. Well, the ninja and slalom skier, Alex Sinatra. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Bye. Bye. Well, definitely a sobering story from Alex there. And he mentioned that you can do your part and donate. 
well, I did some research on the best ways to donate. And if you just Google how you can help with COVID-19 um, and go to fidelitycharitable.org, they've got a great page on several different foundations you can donate to and exactly what they do. Now, I'd like to talk to you briefly about a sponsor of the show, Sync Performance. They do apparel, they do backpacks, they do everything ski racing. It's high quality stuff and it's not just for ski racing. So go to syncperformance.com and use the code SRPODCAST20 to take 20% off your next purchase. This is high performing stuff created for high performing athletes, developed by high performing athletes. So check it out at syncperformance.com. Now, next up, we've got Tom Kelly. He, although not officially certified, I call him officially certified. After talking to him, you will realize that he is. He tells us about the history of slalom skiing from the very start of slalom to our currently paused ending, and it's fantastic. It's not the History Channel talking about aliens. We're not going to tell you that the pyramids were dropped by spaceships. It's actually real stuff, and it's actually interesting. He's got a lot of interesting little anecdotes. So, without further ado, Tom Kelly. So, I'd now like to welcome on the show Tom Kelly. He is a certified ski racing history encyclopedia and a U.S. Ski and Snowboard Hall of Famer. Is that right? Hall of Famer? Yeah, that's right. I don't know about the certified historian. I'm looking up <laughs> on my walls, and I don't see the certificate, but uh, I've been around for a while, so I've experienced a lot. Okay, so unofficially officially certified. Um, but Tom, great to have you on the show. Well, it's good to be here, Jimmy. Uh, it's an honor, and uh, uh, you've done a great job in picking up this podcast this winter, and great to be a part of the show. Let's get started. So you were the VP of communications at U.S. Ski and Snowboard um, when you joined, it was actually the U.S. Ski Association for 30 years. And, and yeah. Is there any way to sum up those years in a few sentences? <laughs> yeah, I think we could do that. I mean, it's the greatest job anybody could ever have. I've always been passionate about skiing since the time I watched it as a seven-year-old, watching the Squaw Valley Olympics on television from home in Madison, Wisconsin. I just wanted to be involved in the sport, so I hooked up in 1986 with the U.S. Ski Association as Assistant National Nordic Director. Two years later, we moved the organization to Park City, and I took over the PR reins and ended up being the spokesperson until my retirement from that role a couple of years ago and still staying really active within the sport. So yeah, what are you up to these days? Well, I've got a lot of consulting clients uh, in the Olympic space, so uh, I still am very close to skiing, but I work with quite a few other sports as well. Uh, I had a plan to go to the Tokyo Olympics this summer, but uh, mm -hmm. that's going to be moved to 2021 now, as we all know. Uh, but it's, it's, I've really enjoyed the last couple of years. I've been as busy as ever working with a lot of different sports and utilizing the knowledge and the background that I have in Olympic sport to help others. Awesome. Um and I hear that you're a native of Wisconsin. Is that right? Yep. I'm a badger. Nice. So uh, my classic question to every guest on the show is Western Mountains or Eastern Mountains. But I'm not sure where Wisconsin falls and what you would say to that question. Well, there was a point in time where Wisconsin had more ski resorts than any state in the Union. Uh, that's not so much the case anymore. But here's huh. the question that I ask. Because I love skiing in the Midwest. I grew up there. I didn't start skiing till 18, but I love those little mountains. And to me, the, the Western mountains are just, like, bigger. 
And you yeah, in the Midwest, you can get the fact, same, but yeah. you just have to take more runs. But I ask people on the chairlifts out here in Park City uh, all the time, if they're from the Midwest, do you still ski back there? And it's disappointing to me that a lot of people don't. Skiing is huh. fun no matter where you do it, whether it's East, West, Midwest, or over in Europe, it doesn't matter. I love skiing. Uh, I was just in Japan a few weeks ago, had a great time there. So to me, it doesn't matter where you ski just as long as you're out there. This is my 50th year on skis, and I wow. still love it. And I, and I don't think... I'm going to push you to go uh, a binary one way or the other. I think we, we'll leave it at that. And we'll leave the count uh, it at uh, three for West and two for East as of right now. So let's dive in. I'm really excited for to have you on the show. And, uh, you know, I caught up with, with, with Tom beforehand to discuss what we were going to talk about. And he put together a... Google Doc on the timeline of American slalom skiing, which is extensive and has names and dates uh, and events I've I'd never even heard of. So we're going to try to get to as much as we can. We could do an entire podcast series on it, but let's get to the, the really good stories. And to start things off, um, these days, American slalom is defined by the sustained dominance of Michaela Schifrin on the women's side which is kind of contrasted by the lack of a team on the men's side right now. Uh, the young Luke Winters led the way this year as the only man to finish top 30 in the past three years for the U.S. Um, and, and the men's slalom story gets a little personal for some people as U.S. ski and snowboard uh, a few years ago got a little controversial when it effectively cut the uh, World Cup slalom team and the four guys that were vying for World Cup points at that point. So we'll get there, but we're going to start at the very beginning. And Tom, how did slalom come about in the world? Well, first of all, Jimmy, I appreciate you doing this story. And as we'll talk about today, the history of the sport, uh, as far as the U.S. ski team goes, like anything, it has highs and it has lows and it has some really amazing periods and it has some periods of drought. And and uh, what we've experienced in the last few years is, you know, you could look back in history and find very much the same. But mm-hmm. but slalom is really the origin of the sport of skiing. And if you go back in time, the, the word itself, slalom, uh, is a Norwegian word. It comes from the dialect in the Morgadal region where really? sla means a, a slightly inclining hillside and, huh. and lam means a track after the skis. So put them together and you have slalom. And the first time that we saw the word was in 1879 was Sandra Nordheim of Norway, uh, who's a great uh, a pioneer of the sport, started using the word. And then in the early part of the 20th century, uh, around 1905 or 1906, the first recorded slalom races in Sonnenberg and Oslo, Norway. But mm-hmm. it wasn't until Sir Arnold Lunn of the Alpine Ski Club in Great Britain came along in 1908 that it really got popularized. He ended up creating a modern competitive slalom event in 1922 and then a few years later in 1931 it was incorporated into the very first uh, FIS World Ski Championships in Murin, Switzerland. Uh So that's kind of how it originated back in the 19th and early 20th century. Well, And so it was really a Norwegian invention, huh? 
Well, you could, and, and people will maybe dispute this, but I think for the most part, you can track virtually everything in skiing back to Norway, including gotcha. the Rudoy stone. Uh, so the sport really, uh, most historians would agree, originated in Scandinavia, Lapland, uh, parts of Russia. Uh, it, it is notable that in Austria at this time, uh, when Sir Arnold Lund was uh, working in the sport, in the 20s, Austria became very active in, in, in ski competition as well. And mm-hmm. all of that led up to the first championships in 1931 when David Zog of Switzerland won the very first slalom world championship and Esme McKinnon uh, of Great Britain won the first title for the women. You know, I think that's really cool that most sports, you track them back that far and the and the women aren't, uh, you know, the women don't come in until later. But from the very first world championships, the women were involved. Yeah, they really were. And, you know, for us in the U.S., uh, when we go through this history, a lot of this history is going to be on the women's side. So we see Michaela Schifrin right now. Mm-hmm. She's won, I think, 40 uh, – she will get to that stat. But she's won, you know, well over half of her World Cup wins are in slalom. Uh, and there's been some other great women in U.S. history. So we'll track through a lot of that in the talk today. Cool. And the other thing I wanted to, to draw people's attention to was the fact that 1879, you said, was – the first use of the word slalom um, in Norway, that's before uh, cars. I mean, th- this is. Oh yeah. I mean, this is before so many modern things. Slalom really does have a rich history from the very beginning. It, it- yeah, it, it, it really does. I mean, skiing in general, if you look back, even in, in this country, you look back into the late 19th century, uh, skiing was popular in New England, across the Midwest, uh, and, and even out in the West. I recently did a did a presentation on the history of skiing in Park City, Utah, and it was fascinating to track that back to the early early part of the 20th century. Uh, if you also look at the origins of what is now U.S. Ski and Snowboard, it began as the National Ski Association, and it began actually in the Midwest uh, in a place called Ishpeming, Michigan, home mm-hmm. of the U.S. Ski and Snowboard Hall of Fame. And at that point, it was mainly cross-country skiing and ski jumping. Alpine skiing really didn't come in for a little bit. In fact, if you look at the history of the Winter Olympics, uh, the Winter Olympics began in 1924 in Chamonix, uh, on that event agenda was cross-country, ski jumping, Nordic combined. But Alpine actually didn't come in until 1936. And at that point, it was only the combined event. And so that was with the combined event. Was that downhill and slalom or was that uh, jumping and slalom? No, it was. Uh, it's a really good question. It was actually uh, totally alpine. So it was uh, slalom and uh uh, downhill, uh, and that was uh-huh. in Garmisch-Partenkirchen in uh, 1936. It wasn't until 1948, the first Olympics after World War II in San Moritz, that they had individual events. And at that time, it was only slalom and downhill in 48. And then in 1952, the giant slalom was added. Okay, that's kind of that's kind of interesting because nowadays combined is not really considered a real event, and there's always an agenda at the fifth Congress every year to get rid of it. Um, but it's funny that it was the first event in the Olympics. Yeah. And you know, there's, there's a lot of pieces to that history, you know, just kind of to jump over to the collegiate side and, you know, anybody who skied collegiately over the years probably knows this, but back in the old days, uh, it was a combination of uh, ski jumping, Alpine and cross country. And, Mm -hmm. and you really needed to be talented in all of those go back into the forties and the fifties ski meister competitions were, were really popular. So if you look at the whole spectrum of things, Alpine is, is, is pretty new, not as new as snowboard and free skiing and freestyle, but uh, it's a lot newer than cross-country and ski jumping. Gotcha. So let's get into the Americans. Who was really the first 
American uh, to perform well on the world stage in slalom? Well, to, to first, I want to give a perspective to to the listeners and mm-hmm. and. If, if you look just at slalom, there's only three Americans who have ever won a slalom crystal globe. Phil Mayer, Tamara McKinney, and Michaela Schifrin. Uh, we'll talk about them as we go through this. And mm-hmm. 12 Americans, uh, different Americans who've won an Olympic or a world championship, championship medal in slalom. But the first one uh, was uh, a pretty stunning accomplishment. And if you can think back to the world after World War II, the, the entire planet is just kind of coming back to life mm-hmm. after this devastating war. The Olympics were taking place in 1948 in this beautiful resort of Samaritz. And a young, uh, actually not that young an American, she was 28 years old at the time, uh, Gretchen Fraser, who'd been mm-hmm. born to German and Norwegian parents. She grew up skiing literally on Mount Rainier with the great ski coach Otto Lang. Uh, she had moved to Sun Valley and was really one of the favorites for America. And in the very first uh, uh, Olympic slalom event, she took the gold. Uh, she ended up finishing. Wow. Uh, fifth in the downhill, second in the combined uh, slalom, and took the silver medal in combined, coming back the next day to win what many refer to as Gretchen's Gold. And if you're ever in Sun Valley, uh, go to Gretchen's restaurant, and you can see her medals on display. Just a beautiful display uh, that Sun Valley has done with those two medals. So did she, should she go back and start a restaurant? Is that her? She, well, she, she didn't start a restaurant herself, but she had, uh, her parents had moved the family to Sun Valley, and I don't know if anybody will remember the name of Sonia Henny, who was a great Norwegian uh, figure skater. Uh, if you've ever been to Sun Valley and stayed at the lodge or the inn, they have, there's one channel that's dedicated to the movie Sun Valley Serenade, which is this amazing black and white film. Uh, but anyways, uh, uh, Gretchen Koenig, as, uh, her, uh, which was her maiden name, uh, was literally a stand-in for Sonia Henny in a number of different movies. So she'd made a life there, and she huh. lived her life uh, uh, out in Sun Valley, and she's really um, one of the favorite daughters of that community still today yeah and and sun valley has its own history i mean it was the first ski resort right i mean the first real real skier in the united states it was the first real resort real notable resort and Mm -hmm. it actually opened in uh, 1936 1937 the union pacific railway had an austrian uh, who was a count uh, working for them and looking for a place along the railroad line to build a resort and he found this area up by uh, north of uh, what is uh, was ketchum at the time and he thought it would be a great place the railroad came through there and that became a uh, resort and in that and in the mid-30s were a time was a time when a lot of these ski areas were getting going around the U.S., but Sun Valley was the first really notable international resort for America. Mm-hmm. So I want to, you know, I, I want people to understand how big Gretchen's gold was, um, especially because if if Sun Valley was started in the 30s and she won her gold in 1948, she was, um, you know, growing up as a ski racer and training in a time when, you know, I'm, it wasn't really that big. Big in that. It's, I mean, how did she get the resources and especially the, the coaching knowledge uh, to 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 win a gold? Well, it, it was a pretty niche sport, but it was also a very notable sport. Uh, it was followed intensely by the news media. Uh, her parents came from European roots, so they knew the sport. They were experienced okay. in the sport. They got her on skis. I don't know specifically how she got connected with Otto Lang. 
but it was really fortuitous. And uh, Otto had immigrated uh, to the U.S. He really liked the pitch on Mount Rainier. And that's where she started as a young girl, Mm -hmm. eventually moving to Sun Valley. But it was tough back then. I mean, equipment was much different. It was all just rudimentary wooden skis, leather boots. Uh, uh, It wasn't anything like what we have today. Gotcha. All right. And so who's the next one up? Who who, um, made the name next? Well, in the 1952 Olympics, the uh, the real star going into that games was Andrea Mead Lawrence, and she came out of Pico Peak, uh, growing up in Vermont. in and around Rut- Rutland, Vermont. Nice. She was a Vermonter, and a lot of people know her as a resident of Mammoth Mountain because she ultimately did move there okay. after her skiing career. But she grew up on on uh, Pico. She made the national team at the age of 14. She went to the Olympics in 1948 at the age of just 15. Wow. Scored a top 10 finish in the slalom there. And she came out and won double gold in 1952 in Oslo. Gotcha. Uh, and what's particularly interesting, so she'd won the giant slalom on the opening day of the games by 2.2 seconds, a pretty Crushed good it. margin. Yeah. But what really took caused people to take notice was in the slalom a few days later. In the first run of the slalom in Oslo, she actually hooked a gate and fell. She hiked up, came down, and finished fourth. And she went out in the second run, and I remember her being quoted as saying, she said, when I took off for the second run, I was released as the full force and energy of who I am as a person. And she won that second run, and she won the gold medal. Her picture was on the cover of Time magazine. She became a national star for that effort. Can you imagine that today? That's incredible. That's, yeah, it just. That's oh, I mean, I can't. How do you know? Did have you seen the footage? How much did she hike? Because that's it doesn't matter. But that's an incredible feat to be able to come back. It, it is. And, and you have to remember, it was a different sport. So yeah. it isn't exactly as it is as it is today. But but still, for the time, that was really unheard of. I can't recall how far she had to hike up, but it was it was notable enough that and, and I, I think if I'm not mistaken, she was maybe maybe she was out. She was out a few seconds. I'd like to say she was out four seconds in the first run, but I really don't know that for mm-hmm. sure. But nonetheless, an incredible accomplishment. And it really caught the attention of the world that she had done this. She won both gold medals. So at this point, two Olympics was slalom, and the Americans have won both of them. Oh, so really the Americans came out pretty hot uh, in terms of the uh, you know the Olympics. And it was both yeah, women. It, it, and, and, it, and it was both women. And, and, and you know, we're going we're gonna to lead up to, you know, talking about that 1964 games, but it was the women that really led the way for the U.S. with Gretchen Fraser and Andrea Mead-Lawrence. Okay. And I, I think the coolest thing about this, talking about this history, it's cool and it's sad that how much media coverage it, it got in, in the U.S. And uh, I don't think it's really covered the same way in the mainstream media these days. Well, it's it, you're right on that. I, I think the differential is there was a lot less going on back in the 40s and mm-hmm. 50s, and this was a, a really new and uh, uh, exciting event. It was kind of the new X Games in a way of the 50s. Well, it was. Yeah, it's a really good way to look at it. So uh, I think there's just a lot more going on right now. Ultimately, it comes down to the stars, and Gretchen Fraser and Andrew Mead Lawrence were great stars, just as Michaela Schifrin is today, and people like Bodie Miller and Lindsey Vaughn and 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 Michaela Schifrin, they transcend that, and they yeah. get into the the uh, the modern culture, and 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 for for a thing, most of the fans out there, it's more than ski racing; it's these amazing personalities. Yeah, well, as we move into the '60s, which 
is the the Bob Beatty era. Um, who who there's actually the you know the Bob Beatty travel fund or endowment. Um, I know that yeah. there's there are things in the in U.S. ski and snowboard named after him. So I know he has an impressive legacy. But talk a bit about him and his team. Well, Bob's an interesting character, and and he he really for well over 50 years he was really the heartbeat of the u.s ski team and he passed away a year or two ago and uh sad to lose him but uh to his dying day he fought for the athletes and that bob Mm -hmm. yaddy travel fund that you mentioned was something that bob was passionate about he felt that these athletes should not have to pay their own way and he fought hard and he pounded on tables and he got in people's faces and he really he really made a difference but back in the 60s he all of a sudden one year he found himself uh, uh in a position of helping the u.s ski team and Pretty soon he moved, or it actually wasn't even the U.S. ski team at that point. Uh, He was just helping at camps, and all of a sudden he became the national team coach and really helped (laughs) to form what we know as the U.S. ski team today. It didn't exist back then. It was just a collection of athletes that would come together, and Bob Bietti was the one responsible for bringing that together and literally starting the U.S. ski team. Okay. And he put together this uh, great group of athletes, and uh, it, it, it ultimately, the story here relative to slalom leads up to the 1964 Olympics in Innsbruck. And going into that games, Bob had really touted the U.S. ski team as these great superstars. And remember, as, as we talked about a minute ago, the men had never won an Olympic medal. Yeah. So we go into the 1964 games, Gene Saubert, a great, uh, great slalom and uh, giant slalom skier. She had already won bronze in the slalom and silver in the giant slalom. Okay. We're on the last day of the games. The men have not won a medal yet. The great Buddy Werner, who was a star at the time, uh, had not come through. And it came right down to these two guys, uh, Jimmy Huga, uh, a Basque from um, uh, the Reno area, and Billy Kidd from Stowe, Vermont. Uh, they were the last hopes, and they came through in that second run, Billy Kidd taking silver and Jimmy Huga taking the bronze. And all of a sudden, the U.S. ski team had a men's Olympic medal, and two of them. And that picture yeah. of Bob Beatty with Jimmy and Billy in the finish line is just an iconic representation of the history of the u.s ski team yeah i i think i've seen the picture you're talking about um and that and that's the beginning for the men uh of a a long legacy of slalom skiing and it's cool did you and i know billy kidd actually um run my my little brother did a race uh that was the billy kidd cup or something last year in colorado yeah um and i've seen clips of uh, Billy Kidd commentating uh, at uh, r- races that the mayors were racing in. Can you talk yeah. a bit about Billy Kidd and his personality? Well, Billy's an amazing guy, and I've, I'm proud to have gotten to know him over the years, and he's still a fixture at, at Steamboat now. And yeah. uh, But we need to remember, he came from Stowe. He's just yep. lived at Steamboat for yep. quite a few years. And he's well known for his white Stetson that he wears. Uh, he does wear a helmet skiing now. I think that took a while to get him convinced that that was an important thing to do. <laughs> but he's just an ambassador for skiing. And Every time I see him, I, I just ask him, how deep is the powder today at Steamboat? And he's always got a clever answer. He's always got a brochure in his pocket. He's got his uh, world championship medal in his pocket, his Olympic medal in his pocket. He's just wow. a great ambassador for the sport. And we need people like that who, who spend their whole lives just advocating for skiing and all it represents. Yeah, 
definitely. I'm glad he does. I, I've, I've seen a few, you know, he's always, yeah, he's got that big cowboy hat and big personality and a lot of positivity. So yeah, he really does. One one other story I want to tell you though from that era, uh, there were a lot of great skiers, but Buddy Werner was the real notable one. And uh, a lot of people don't uh, uh, know or remember this, but uh, Buddy actually won the Hanenkamp downhill um, in um, uh, I think it was 1959. He came from Steamboat Springs, mm-hmm. but Buddy never won an Olympic medal. But uh, Buddy was just this real leader of the team, and he really motivated people. Uh, Chuck Ferries, who many people may know, a longtime trustee for the U.S. ski team and mm-hmm. uh, an Olympian himself, uh, he's Chuck is the only American to ever win the slalom at Kitzbühel, and he won that in 1962. There's a really cool story that goes behind that. A few weeks before the race, Buddy Werner had been injured, and uh, while he was injured, Buddy was hanging out with the team, and just as he was, he was just this magnet, and Chuck was having some real difficulty at the time. It just wasn't coming together for him, and he was in a bad streak, and Buddy took him aside one day and gave him some advice and gave him some counsel. And lo and behold, two weeks later, Chuck went out and won that slalom at Kitzbühel. And again, 1962, the only American to ever win that. Bodie Miller came close, but Chuck's the only American to win that race. Oh, Buddy has come. I mean, Bodie has come so close in both the the, uh, downhill and the slalom so many times. Um, But I identify really with that story because, um, you know, everyone in ski racing does, I'm sure, where where they're in a hole and you just it just takes one person who says the right thing and it just clicks um so yeah and and that's what he was he was a good teammate and 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 i think you see the same with uh with athletes today mm-hmm. and there's the buddy werner um there's there's a race in vermont named after buddy werner i think i, I mean or there's a race series or a league or something i've heard the well name. the buddy yeah, the Buddy Werner League was created many years ago, and it only exists in a few places right now. But given his popularity in the in the '60s, uh, uh, this series was created to kind of give kids an opportunity. Uh, Buddy uh, was uh, sadly killed in an avalanche uh, just two months after those Olympics uh, in oh. Samaritz, and uh, so uh, he never never did have his uh, chance to win that Olympic medal. Wow, that's that's sad. Well. On to the next mainstay of American slalom. Who do you have for us? So an important point to remember is that the World Cup as we know it right now didn't begin until 1967. So at the time of the 64 Olympics with Billy Kidd and Jimmy Hugo, there was no World Cup. There were international races, but it wasn't this uh, consolidated uh, entity that it is today. So that began in 1967. And in that era, there were quite a few really good slalom skiers for the U.S. And a couple that I want to note uh, is Judy Nagel mm-hmm. uh, from Crystal Mountain, Washington, and, and, uh, and Kiki Cutter. Uh, Kiki ended up with four World Cup wins. Uh, Judy uh, uh, ended up with, uh, I think, two World Cup wins. And and one one story in particular that that was uh, fascinating uh, to me, and uh, some of the listeners may have read this uh, in ski racing back over the holidays. Uh, but in December of 1969, uh, and this is just a couple of years into the start of the World Cup, they had the first technical races in Lienz, Austria, now a mainstay mm-hmm. on the World Cup tour. Uh, Judy Nagel went in there and she swept those races, taking the slalom and the giant slalom. Uh, she had won a World Cup uh, about six months earlier in Italy uh, with her sister Kathy finishing second. Uh, But all of a sudden, Judy Nagel is on this world stage. Her best friend at the time was Kiki Cutter. But 
the team just wasn't that organized. And even mm-hmm. though Judy Nagel, with all of these World Cup wins, just 18 years old, she decided to retire at the end of that season. Wow. And it was it was fun to talk to her again, uh, you know, some 50 years after that and get her philosophy and what really caused her to retire. And, you know, she said at the time, it just wasn't that big a deal. The team wasn't necessarily that organized. She really mm-hmm. couldn't see where the future was. So she just moved on to other things. But I often think back, you know, what kind of a career could she have yeah. had if, if she stuck with it? But boy, I tell you that moment in time uh, over the Christmas holiday in Lienz in 1969, uh, winning that slalom in GS was a really big deal for for that young skier from Crystal Mountain. Yeah, I mean, that's that's like a Michaela Schifrin standard right there, winning World Cups before you're 18. And well, who knows? She, who knows what, yeah, what, what she, could uh, come? M- Michaela has often been compared to, uh, you know, Kiki and Judy because they were all winning at a, at a really early age. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, we'll talk about Michaela in a bit, but same thing with her. Yeah, so um, who's Who's next? So as we as we get into the 70s, things were definitely uh, kind of in one of those droughts. Uh, this was the mm-hmm. era of the Cochrans, and uh, many people know that story of the entire skiing family. I think at one point there were four siblings who were on the U.S. ski team together. Yeah. But the one notable accomplishment I want to highlight, in 1972 at the Sapporo Olympics, a uh, gold medal in the slalom by Barbara Cochran, winning that event by two hundredths of a second at the time that was the closest margin of victory in any olympic alpine event uh that record was actually broken in 1998 by peekaboo street when she won the super g in uh, uh hakaba japan by a mere 0.01 but uh barbara cochran's gold medal again just ignited things for the sport in 1972 yeah and and in the midst of a drought it, it it must have it must have been huge, and I have actually uh, talked to her about it. Spent some time at at the Cochrane Skiria, um, and she and she wasn't exactly a favorite, but she just kind of figured out the mental game that day, and yeah. was able to pull it off. And I want to note for for anybody who doesn't know what the Cochrane Skiria is like, I'm sure everyone's heard of it because of its long history in American skiing, especially American slalom skiing. But I, I brought a couple teammates uh to Cochran's one year from the west and they were surprised they said this this is it this is Cochran's because it's truly you know one slalom course length not particularly steep at any point and it's basically a truck motor running a rope tow yeah um but that's a that's a great story and I wanted to uh talk about uh, Spider Savage, because you mentioned him in our uh, uh, research, and he was a slalom skier as well, right? Yeah, Spider Spider was a great racer, and he uh, it really gained more of his fame once he went over to the Pro Tour. Uh, okay. But in uh, 1968, uh, in April at, at Heavenly Valley, and, and and this was just the second year of the World Cup Tour, uh, 
this was a pretty amazing uh, uh, day in the slalom, uh, both for the men and the women. Uh, Spider Savage took the win in the slalom at uh, at Heavenly. Uh, Rick Chaffee, a uh, great slalom skier from New England, uh, uh, took uh, uh, took third in that, and Judy Nagel uh, taking third. So uh, Spider went on to race on the Pro Tour, became quite a celebrity. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, he was known as a real partier and a really fun guy, and uh, I had spent a little bit of time with him, although not that much, but he was a real favorite in the sport. Uh, sadly, uh, he was he was murdered by his girlfriend, uh, Claudine Langer, in Aspen in uh, what uh, was a very, very controversial situation. Uh, she spent only a very short time in jail and something that I know is still very troubling to a lot of his friends. Yeah, a, a bit of drama. Um, in, a lot of drama. Um, and and was, the, was the pro tour the way it is um, these days, the same, you know, parallel slalom format? Same, same format as it is today, uh, but really quite an amazing tour. Uh, it's, it started when Bob Beatty left the ski team and wanted to create something different. Uh, and Bob, by the way, uh, just as a side note, also is the one who, uh, he didn't create NASTAR, but he really popularized it. Uh, uh, and at the same time, what he did with the Pro Tour, he elevated the Pro Tour to a really high level in America. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of money at those races. They were heavily sponsored. They took place in all parts of the country. I remember going to pro races uh, uh, in uh, uh, Mount Holly in Michigan, I think in Boyne Mountain, up in uh, Afton Alps in uh, uh, Minnesota at uh, Winter Park. But they had races all over the country. Spider was one of the, the, the great legends in that tour. Uh-huh. I hope, you know, I... I love. It's a dream of mine, and I'm sure many people to have the same celebrity status and um, of the old days of the Pro Tour, and hopefully the Pro Tour can do that now. But at this point, it just seems to be, you know, a, a very divided between those who have success in the World Cup and then those who kind of or have have finished their success in the World Cup and are now um, kind of moved on. But Anyway, well, I'm inc- I'm encouraged by what the Pro Tour is doing now, and mm-hmm. I've I've talked to John Franklin uh, John Franklin a number of times, who's running the Pro Tour right now, and he's the he's the right guy to run this and to help elevate it up a little bit higher. So, uh, fingers crossed that it will continue to be a big part of the sport in America. Yeah, yeah, and it'd be cool for them to do, I don't know the you know all the details and logistics, but I I've always thought it'd be awesome to do a pro tour stop in uh you know in at fenway at a uh yeah you know baseball park the same way they did a big air competition in atlanta georgia i mean it's it's no harder you build build a ramp with scaffolding and and the fans will come as well you 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 totally you totally could do that i was involved in the event that uh, we did at fenway a couple years ago Mm -hmm. i didn't go to the atlanta event this year but the fenway event was magical um super expensive and a lot of risk in doing it but boy if you can pull it off it's really amazing yeah yeah well maybe that's just the kick that the pro tour needs but that would that would be a difference maker yeah but moving on to the 80s because after basically a decade of not much happening in slalom by the Americans. Uh, we go into the 80s, and there are the mayors. And tell us about that. Yeah, there's, there's without question, there is no period in history that was so rich and deep 
in success as the 1980s. And this is a team that had been built up by Alpine director Hank Tauber uh, uh, in the late 70s, and he handed it over to Bill Marolt in the, in the 80s. Mm-hmm. And it, it's just chock full of history. I mean, in 1980, Phil Mayer winning silver on the last day of the Olympics, the only medal won by the Alpine team at the Olympics in Lake Placid. Really? Wow. A couple of years later, Kristen Cooper winning silver at the World Championships. Again, a a, a big accomplishment. Uh, but over that next couple of years, it, it, it just was so amazing what was being accomplished. I mean, here, uh, just to, just to throw out some of the, some of the stats, uh, uh, uh f- from this, the, this era, uh, Tamara McKinney, ultimately a career that had 27, uh, 25 slalom podiums with nine wins. Wow. Phil Mayer, 27 slalom podiums with nine wins. Uh, his brother, Steve, 14 podiums, seven wins in slalom. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but, but w- without question, one of the most memorable single events, was the slalom at the Olympics last day in Sarajevo in 1984. Phil Mayer and Steve Mayer, the twins, ultimately skiing to gold medal, silver medal. And what an amazing Mm -hmm. experience it was for those two. And one of the things I I love to talk to Phil about is he tells the story about how he and Steve win these medals. And I believe that his uh, daughter was born on that same day back home. So they're going to the medal ceremony and Phil's just thinking to himself, man, this is great. This is about me and my brother and all that we've done. And he Mm -hmm. says, when I stood up there on that podium and I heard the anthem and I saw the flag going up, he said, all of a sudden it hit me is that this wasn't about me at all. It wasn't about my brother and I. It was about all of the people who helped us get there. And it was really, to team me, mentality. it was just a summation of, yeah, of that team mentality. And the mayors were known as being a little bit of loners and on their own, and they trained a lot on their own. But at the end of the day, it was that team. It was the fans. It was the yeah. family. All those people that helped them to get up on that podium. Yeah, I think that's cool. And I think all it's kind of what unites all American slalom skiers is you realize, you know, you've got the whole country behind you. You've got your whole team behind you. And it's, it's, it's more about you. Um, you know, we, we still have a whole lot of people to talk about, but I'd love to talk about, um, the, the twins and, and was, how was that dynamic and was it competitive and they, they must've helped each other immensely. Well, it was, it was hyper competitive. I'll tell you a funny story though. Uh, in, uh, January of 84, just a month before the Olympics, they were at a race, a slalom world cup in Lenzerheide. And the coach at the time was Tom Kelly my namesake from uh-huh. Squaw Valley. Uh, and uh, the other Tom Kelly and I like to joke around a lot about this, uh, but at the, at the team meeting, Tom Kelly gave out the bibs to the twins and he inadvertently gave them the wrong bibs. Mm-hmm. And Steve Mayer went out, I think it was Steve, who actually went out and won that race, but they figured out that the bibs had been given out to the wrong people so they were ultimately disqualified oh and, really and was, they were yeah and they they figured this out after the first run steve i think i think steve was running number three that day and he's out on the course and he hears the announcer saying and on course right now is phil Mayer." 
And he thought to himself, well, that's odd. Mm. Meltzer must have made a mistake. But then they found out they had the wrong bibs. They told the race officials, and the officials did give them a second run. Uh, but then they met after the race and decided to disqualify them. So uh, that, that's just a funny story. And I was in Europe at the time working in cross country, and I took a lot of heat from my friends because they all thought I was the one that gave them the wrong bibs. I said, oh, no, but it was that's the, the other, other Tom, Tom Kelly. Kelly. The other Tom <laughs> Kelly. You can blame a lot on the other Tom Kelly, I guess. You you, you can. There, there's another uh, Phil Mare story that uh, I, I think Warren's telling. Uh, uh, remember that Phil uh, Phil was actually the first American to win a World Cup title in slalom. He won that in 1982. And he was in a pitch battle with Ingemar Stenmark, the great uh, Swede, who had won the slalom title, get this, the seven years previous to that. And they go to Montgenev, uh, France, for the finals. And the finals uh, included a parallel slalom. Mm -hmm. And it was basically winner take all. And in the end, uh, Phil Mayer took the win. Stenmark was second. And that was just enough of a margin to give Phil that crystal globe. Um, so a great accomplishment for him. But yeah. to talk a, to talk a little bit about Stenmark, one of the things that's, that's so remarkable about Ingemar Stenmark is – he he was so successful over the period of a decade, and it was a decade in which the sport was completely changing. So he went, growing up as a kid, skiing on wooden skis and leather boots to skiing on plastic boots and metal skis. Uh -huh. He started with bamboo poles. In fact, probably even started with bamboo poles on the World Cup, went to plastic poles, and ultimately ended his career with uh, breakaways. And Mm -hmm. To think of what these athletes did, you could go back to Billy Kidd and Jimmy Huga. Uh, I believe that they won their medals on uh, uh, leather boots and wooden skis, but in their careers, they also had to transform to completely different equipment. And, you know, they just made that adjustment, much as the skiers do today as the equipment changes as well. Yeah, and I think that's the, one of the cooler things about slalom is that it has gone from leather boots, wooden skis, you know, not only have the boots and skis changed, but also the gates. And, you know, um, there are people, I've heard traditionalists say they prefer the bamboos where people weren't smashing through the gates, but they were having to weave around them. And what, what do you, I mean, I haven't really watched much of that. My, I've only seen, you know, cross blocking breakaway gates. So what do you, what do you think? Well, it would be interesting to take some of the skiers today as an exhibition and uh, before putting them in bamboo, maybe just put them in plastic non-breakaways and uh -huh. see how that would work. But it would be interesting to, to see that. Breakaways have been around for a long time now, so it is what all of us are, are accustomed to. Uh, but, you know, look back. If it, Go onto YouTube and find some videos of Ingemar Stenmark and just watch how... You know, he had to adapt his winning style over the course yeah. of the 10 years or so he was at the top of his game. Yeah, that's pretty impressive, too. I mean, you think about, um, we'll talk about this, but going from the 90s to the 2000s, going from shape, uh, straight skis to shape skis, most of the slalom skiers kind of phased out and a new wave came in. So to be able to stay on top is impressive. So let's start, let's talk about the 90s and uh, what American slalom skiers were there. 
Well, the '90s were a really interesting period. There, there, there really wasn't a uh, there wasn't a lot of uh, of depth, and you know you had skiers like Matt Grosjean and Monique Pelletier who would crack into the top ten. But really, the two skiers who are most emblematic of success in the 1990s were Julie Parisian from Sugarloaf and Christina Kosnick from Buck Hill outside of Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. And I want to start with Julie Parisian. She had uh, uh, she came out of Sugarloaf was a great young skier. She initially got her breakthrough in, in giant slalom. Uh, and if you go back back in time to uh, 1991, uh, she won a Noram in this little ski area of ski sunlight outside of Glenwood Springs. Mm-hmm. And she didn't just win this Noram, but she won it by two seconds over a full World Cup starting list. And I remember I was there that day and I remember the Austrians complaining that there was a problem with the timing. Well, there wasn't. She just beat them. (laughs) And she went into Vail and had a good performance there. And then she went on to Waterville uh, a couple of weeks later and she won a World Cup giant slalom uh, in March of 91. But slalom was really where she would make uh, her mark. Uh, She ended up going to uh, the Olympics in uh, uh, Albertville that next year. So February of 1992, the Olympic slalom at Maribel. Uh, she comes down and leads the first run. I mean, she was just ecstatic. But at the Olympics, you have this like long gap between the first run and the second run. And during that time, her head just played games. Oh, and she goes imagine. into the second run with the lead, last one down. She gives up the lead. She ends up fourth, five hundredths out of a medal. And I I remember her first standing there in the finish, staring up the hill, not saying a thing. And you just know what's going on in her mind. And, you know, it was just a it was just a really sad moment in time knowing that she had given that medal away. And it impacted her, something that she thought about for a long time. And I know Mm -hmm. that she still thinks about it today. Yeah, that's a that's a heartbreaker. Um, and so you mentioned there's also Christina Kosnick in this era. Yeah. And before I get to Kos, just another quick note on, on Julie. She did come back and she won a slalom a month later up in Sweden, came back that next November and won another slalom World Cup in Park City. And then her career really was impacted when a few weeks after that win in Park City, her brother JP was killed by a drunk driver Mm -hmm. up in Maine. And that was something that just really took the soul out of her. Uh, She did continue to race. She went on to win a silver medal at the World Championships in Morioka Shizukuishi, Japan, a few months later. But it it really impacted her career. She did stick around uh, on and off and did go to the 1998 Olympics, but uh, uh, did not have great success there. But Christina Kosnick uh, was really the story of this era. Her career really was uh, following Julie's. Uh, 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 she came out of the Buck Hill program, coached by Eric Seiler, as did a number of uh, slalom skiers mm-hmm. at that time. Of course, Lindsay yeah. Kildow, Lindsay Vaughn yeah. came out of that program And Eric program Seiler as well. is still, still kicking, still running a big program. He, yeah, it's it's remarkable. And he's just, he, he too, he's just such a great promoter of the sport. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Kaz was was probably his 
greatest accomplishment. And he was so proud uh, to see that young athlete from his program do well. Her, her career was, was really fascinating. She wasn't on anybody's radar going into the 98 Olympics, into that 98 Olympic season. Mm-hmm. But in December of that year, she finished second in Lienz in the slalom. Uh, she came back a few weeks later, was second again. Uh, and then uh, a few weeks later, in fact, I think it was the event before the Olympics in Ori, Sweden, uh, she ended up picking up her first career World Cup slalom win over Hilda Gerig from, wow. from Germany, who eventually was the Olympic champion. So she goes into the Olympics now this wonderkin from this little hill in the in the in the midwest called buck hill and she was a big story big story going into the olympic slalom which was held uh, on a hill called shigakogan near nagano uh, she didn't have a great first run she was ninth time-wise she was a fair bit back and came into the second run and uh, and dnf so unfortunately her olympics were over mm. she Battled injuries for the next couple of years, but she came back again in the lead up to the Salt Lake City Olympics in almost a complete duplication of the story going into Nagano. Oh, in January no. of 2002, she wins in Berchtesgarten. She goes back up to Ari, where she had won going into Nagano, finished second up there, goes into the Olympics here at uh, Deer Valley and at DNF'd home. in the first run oh. uh, at home. So, Man. uh, Tough breaks for her, but uh, she is a Hall of Famer. She was inducted into the U.S. Uh, Ski and Snowboard Hall of Fame a few years ago. Uh, can be really proud of the career that she had. 20 World Cup podiums, six wins. Yeah. Uh, not a bad career. Uh, and, and you know, certainly, you know, in the late 90s and the early 2000s, boy, she gave us some great memories. So she led the way for the Americans in, in that time period. And then yeah, she really did. Um, and, and, and do you think that I think Lindsay Vaughn, then Lindsay Kildow had her first her first World Cup victory was a slalom win, I think. Right. It, it, she she it wasn't her first World Cup win, but mm-hmm. her first World Cup podium, her first three World Cup podiums were slaloms. And, and, and this is kind of fascinating because you can you can look at a number of people, a uh, number of athletes. Ted Ligeti is another example. But uh, Lindsey Vaughn started her career. Her first three World Cup podiums were slalom. She ended up with five slalom podiums, two wins. All of them mm-hmm. came in the 2008-9 and 2009-10 seasons. Okay. So right at the front so end of her career. Christina Kosnick, though. Uh, yeah, a bit yeah. after Christina Kosnick. They were, yeah, they were, I think they're about 10 years apart in age. Um, but it is interesting to see how that starts. But, and, and you know, Bodie Miller's the same way. He made yeah. his start with slalom and GS wins. Yeah, and I and I want to talk, talk about Bodie because um, he's kind of the reason I ski race. And he <laughs> exploded onto the scene right when shape skis were, were, coming, were, were coming in and... Uh, he had his first win. Um, I've watched this a million times as a kid, but his first win at Madonna at the night slalom in December of '01. Yeah, it it, uh, it uh, he had an amazing career. And I, I want to tell that story, and to do it, I want to go back to uh, the 2001 World Championships in St. Anton. This mm-hmm. is where Darren Rolves won the Super G to uh, kind of kick things off. Bodie blew his knee out there. Uh, big injury, and I, re- I remember sitting around with Bodie and and uh, some of his uh, 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 friends and 
and doctor and a few others and just kind of talking about this injury. And he, he had this really different approach to how he was going to treat this injury and how he was going to come back. And I know there were a number of people who rolled their eyes at the time, but he did that. And he blows his knee out in February of 2001. He comes back in November, you know, just like 10 yeah. months later, and he finishes second in the Aspen Slalom, first World Cup podium. Mm-hmm. Uh, then he goes to Madonna in December, really tough slalom course, and he wins that one, the night race you referred to. Yep. And then in January, he goes to Adelboden. He wins the slalom there. So this guy is like on a, uh-huh. on a roll. Yeah. Goes into Kitzbühel, finishes third in the slalom there, good finish. But the big turning point, and I, and I look at this, this night as a turning point for the U.S. ski team and the sport in America. Mm-hmm. Bodie goes into Schladming, the night race. To me, this is bigger than Kitzbühel. Oh, yeah. There's 50,000, 60,000 fans yeah. on the hill shooting off rockets. Uh, and he comes out and he wins the night race. He beats the Austrian Austrians on their home turf. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's, it's just a remarkable thing that he accomplished there all of this leading into the 2002 Olympics. So uh, it was a it was a stunning win for him to pick up that to pick up that slalom victory. Yeah, and I dream of the day when another American will win Schladming because it really is Schladming in slalom is really the the Kitzbühel to downhill, and um, yeah, the, the the spectators, the whole scene. They call it the night race, uh, like the, like whatever. Uh, Nachtschlalom in in Austria. Yeah, it's an amazing event, and that night was just magical. And mm-hmm. he, and and this is the thing about U.S. skiers: the Austrians are obviously going to cheer for the hometown athletes, but the Austrians are smart, and they realize that an American success story is pretty close to an Austrian success story. And he had a lot of fans that night. If it wasn't going to be Benny Reich winning, they wanted to see Bodie Miller take it. That's cool. And I think I think the uh, the Europeans tend to be fans of Americans, uh, the crowds. I don't know if, if if you know much about that or if you can speak to that. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, I found this over the years that uh, the Americans endear themselves to the uh, European fans. And I think a lot of it has to do with accessibility. Uh, in general, the Americans have been more accessible to the fans than some of their own national heroes. And I know this was the case with, with Bodie because I was with him that, that night in Schladming. And he spent a lot of time with the fans, a lot of time with the kids. He was very accessible. The fans could reach out and touch him. And I know mm-hmm. that that's something that, you know, Lindsey Vaughn has done, Michaela has done, uh, Darren Rolves has done, uh, Ted Ligety as well. The Americans have, have really endeared themselves to those fans. Yeah. Well, we move on now into Michaela Schifrin, um, who really has been the face of American Slalom for the past decade now. Uh, because her first win was in her first podium was in 2011. Her first win was in 2012. Yeah, I mean, Michaela's story just transcends uh, everything. If you mm-hmm. look at these stats, 43 World Cup slalom wins, 54 World Cup slalom podiums, um, and I, I think it's interesting too. Most she she didn't go to a lot of junior world championships because she was on the World Cup. I think at age fourteen, mm-hmm. uh, but she took a, a a bronze medal in slalom at the twenty eleven uh, junior worlds. Uh, but 
it's just a stunning career. And it, it had its start in Lien's, uh, as did many others we talked about earlier in December of 2011. She was third in the slalom there at the age of 16. She came back uh, uh, a year later in uh, Ori, Sweden, which is a, a, a place that has become very near and dear to her. At the age of 17, she picked up her first uh, World Cup uh, victory. Uh, and, you know, the rest is history, and that history is still being written. Yeah. And that's that's the fun thing about it right now is I think Michaela's got plenty of years ahead of her. Um, but looking – and one question I was – you know, I don't know how much you know about Michaela and, 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 the, and the women's slalom team, but it seems like every uh, star is able to kind of bring up – either inspire or train with or bring up another star behind them to fill the space. Um, and do you – do you think Michaela will be able to do that in, in her time? Well – I hope so. And you're spot on, Jimmy, on that principle that these stars foster this in their teammates and Mm -hmm. the kids who watch them race. I I think for a variety of reasons, that hasn't happened exactly that way uh, with women's slalom racing here in America. Uh, I don't have, I can't, you know, pinpoint any reason why that that is the case. I, I will say that I really admire what I see from athletes like Paula Molson, who is a junior yeah. world champion from 2015, and the success that she's been able to build over the last few years. But I think that the real uh, hero aspect of Michaela will play out maybe not with this generation of athletes, but with the athletes of the next generation coming up. And I think, Jimmy, just as you said, you know, you were inspired by Bodie. There's countless hundreds and thousands of young girls who are inspired by Michaela right now who will come through the pipeline. Uh, You know, it would be great if there was more depth to build on that now. But if that's not the case, I think we will for sure see that in another generation coming along now in the next five to 10 years. Definitely. And, and like you said, on the men's side too, I mean, there's, there's been kind of a, a little bit of a gap between Bodie winning uh, a slalom and whoever wins for the American men next. Um, but I know that the whole team I've been training with, um, spent some time training with Luke Winters and, and uh, some other slalom skiers you know, trying to make it like AJ Guinness and Chet Seymour. And we were all watching Bodie when he was when we were young and he was having a success. And I think it's kind of maybe that delayed reaction, that inspiration, to, you know, 10 years down the line. Well, it very, it very well could be, but I, I want to draw another example. And this is not to say it should be either one of these ways, but one of the things that I have really admired is what Ted Liggett is doing on the GS side and, and how he's really, you know, kind of polishing his legacy mm-hmm. in the work that he's done to stick around and to work with those athletes. And, you know, I, I remember watching Tommy Ford's win in Beaver Creek oh, this yeah. year on my phone yeah. in, a, in a Costco. Oh, okay. I was in a Costco <laughs> and I said, Carol, Carol, look at this. He's yeah. like winning. He's going to win this race. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and, and Ted, I would, I think Ted finished fourth or fifth in, in that one. But, you know, to, to me, the story there was the perseverance and the story was Ted Liggety building his legacy and really working with those guys. And, and, and it's, yeah. it's been fun to, to, to watch that. It, it, just speaking of slalom, Ted's first three podiums on the world cup were, were slaloms. And I think the very first one was December, 2005 in, in Beaver Creek when he, when he finished 
third there. But he's done a nice job at, at building his legacy and, and, and handing that off to the next generation. Yeah, and the, and the GS squad is, is actually quite deep these days. Um, and I, and I, you know, I know Ted is battling through uh, issues with his back and, and, and all that, but it's, I think it's cool for a lot of those guys on the team, especially the younger ones um, in those GS World Cups. They did grow up like me watching Ted um, dominate and inspire them. And I think it's cool to be able to ski with him on the same team too. Yeah, it yeah. really is. And, and, and I know that Michaela is inspiring countless hundreds mm-hmm. and thousands of, uh, of athletes. And, and we're going to see the, the benefits of that just as we did with, uh, with, with Lindsay and, 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 and with Bodie. Yeah. Well, I hope, and I, I have a lot of hope for American slalom you know, with Michaela, with so many years ahead of her, with, you know, we, we got Paula Moulton and Nino O'Brien, and we've got, mm-hmm. you know, Luke Winters leading the way with some incredible runs last season. Um, I mentioned AJ Guinness. There's Ben Ritchie. Um, there's, uh, maybe I'll pop in there. Maybe I'll, you know, finally <laughs> uh, make a big breakthrough. So um, I absolutely loved this, this story of American Slum. I think it's a great saga. And I think there's there's so many little stories still to be heard about it. Um, and hopefully people will reach out to me with their own stories of American slalom and I can tell them on the next podcast. But um, for now, Tom, I'm extremely grateful for you uh, sharing your ski racing knowledge. Um, and I wish you the best in your future endeavors. Maybe I'll have you back on for the story of American Downhill or GS. Uh, but until then, thanks for being on the show. Jimmy, thanks for having me. It's been an honor, and I hope that we've uh, been able to regale you with a few stories of the great history of slalom with the U.S. ski team. I'm very excited about that segment with Tom Kelly. I don't think there's one place you can go to find out about the history of American slalom skiing in the same way that we just did it. So I'm excited about that, and uh, I'm going to keep this brief because we're running longer than we usually do, but... I will tell you that Helmut will be back next week to give you in-home workout tips. And a guy from Boston keeps calling us. I'm going to let him get through to us finally. Also, there are several athletes that have retired at the end of this season and a few only in the past week or so. So next episode, I'm also going to go through all of that, talk about those guys, honor and appreciate their careers in the World Cup. Well, that's our show. Thanks for listening. I really appreciate it. Um, I'm just a a lowly podcaster trying to make his podcast reach more people. So don't forget to hit the subscribe button. It helps me out. And spread the word. Tell other people to hit the subscribe button. It makes things easy. It does automatic downloads and notifies you when a new episode comes out, which, by the way, is every Thursday, but you knew that. But until then, I wish upon you all clean hands, positive vibes, at least six feet, and tolerance to deal with your quarantine inmates. Until then, I'm Jimmy Kripka. This is Ski Racing This Week, Ski Racing Media's official podcast. Ski you later. <laughs>